Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I knew when I was 11, I was like, this is now the thing that I'm going to never stop doing. Mm. And it was weird. I was like, I'll probably have other loves in my life, but I feel like this could be the longest. Hello and welcome to Love Lives, a podcast from The Independent where I, Olivia Petter, will be asking different guests about the loves of their lives. Today I am so excited to be joined by one of my favourite musicians, Freya Ridings. She's back with her second album, Blood Orange, which mixes disco and pop alongside some of the more piano ballads that she is known and loved for. I'm so excited to talk to her all about it today and also hear about the loves of her life. So, hi Freya, how are you? Hi Olivia, thank you so much for having me. I'm actually so excited. This is the first in-person podcast I've done in really? so long. Oh, good. They've all been on Zoom for like so many years. It's so much more fun doing it in person. I feel like you it can really have a real is. conversation. So tell us about Blood Orange. I know that this was your second album following the huge success of your debut. How did you feel when you sat down to start writing something new? I was so like terrified like daunted isn't even the right word it was terrified and I think I just I've been on tour with the first album like Lost Without You happened then Castles and it was just like this incredible like slow building wave because like I've been writing songs since I was nine years old and performing them since I was 11 so by the time I was I think I was 19 when I wrote Lost Without You so it was kind of I felt like it had taken decades to get to that point and then to find an independent label who really championed that and like let me write my own songs. That was a really big moment for me. So it just, it felt like a real slow snowball that just kind of turned into this massive thing and that then couldn't be stopped. And it was just like, it was incredible. 2019, 2018 and 19 were some of the most incredible years of my life. And I think when you're when you're in it, you kind of are just running on the adrenaline. And, you know, if you're going through a heartbreak at the same time, you kind of use the adrenaline of being on tour to kind of run from that. Like there's so much going on. And then for me to have to actually like, you know, with the pandemic and everything, it was just like silence. And I actually had to start thinking like, what do I even want to like say? Like the pressure on a second album is just, it's crushing. And it's just something I've really struggled with. So I was so actually really grateful to have to come home from tour, be back in my, my parents' living room and just be like, okay, let's, it was almost like full circle. Like this is back where I wrote Lost Without You, back like this. Yeah. It's almost like, it felt like a weird fever dream that it even happened in the first place, but it was nice to kind of start from scratch again. And then it's the story of the last three years of my life. This album, it's kind of from heartbreak into the euphoria of like that freedom and then trying to rebuild yourself into someone who's grown up, you know? Mm. So yeah, tell us about the process because the album I think takes us on a real journey. So I think when you started writing it, you were fresh from a breakup. Mm. So initially when you started writing it, did you sort of envision this as like a kind of breakup album? Exactly, when people are like, why do you call it Blood Orange? I'm like, I don't know, like, because at the time I didn't know why it was gonna have these two halves. I thought it was just gonna be a really, really sad album. And I think the evolution of like, 
how much happier the music became when I became happier sort of like about halfway through and like the, the amount of therapy I did to kind of overcome so many. I think that for the first album is a lot of like, why is this happening to me? And the second one is a lot more like, how am I the common denominator in the things that keep happening to me? Like, why do I keep going through the same pain again and again and again? I'm wanting to just grow as a person and enjoy the fruits of that growth, but it's painful. It was like physically painful, but I'm so proud of what this album has given me. And I'm just like, I'm so relieved that it's finally out in the world after so long. Mm. And so share the story of what happened with our listeners, because I think it's a really lovely story about, you know, what happened with you and your now husband that kind of led to that lovely arch that you have in the album. Yeah. So when we started writing the album, I we weren't together and I was sort of, yeah, I said, using the adrenaline of yeah. like being, we were on tour in Australia. We were like, you know, just so much adrenaline that I could hide from it. And I kind of put it out of my mind and we did a whole European tour in the January before lockdown. And so when we got on the flight after the final show in Australia and I realized I was like, I'm coming home for the first time in what felt like years, like mentally as well, to be present with the people that you love. Cause I think, you know, I, I love this job so much, but I'd almost sacrificed like everything, like every relationship. I was like, I have to put my blinkers on and this is a once in a lifetime thing. And I realized that the balance had just gone completely out of whack. And that's what the song Weekends is about, is realizing when you, you know, you come home from those like professional engagements with people who you love working with to like to no one you're like holy crap hits you like a ton of bricks yeah I think it's really interesting when musicians talk about that as well because there's this feeling of being on stage mm. in front of thousands of people and performing all of these it songs. It looks so social. It looks like you adoration. just have thousands of friends. And yeah. it's like, it's not necessarily the same thing as one or two very good but close friends. But then I can imagine it must be so weird to leave the stage yeah. and go to your dressing room and then you're just on your own. Yeah. It's a very confronting experience, like, and psychologically. Also, <laughs> when you have to like save your voice or like, you know, you have to pace your voice as well, you can't speak to people and it's quite an isolating thing to do. And you're suddenly back in like your bunk in a, in a tour bus. And but the thing is like, I love playing live. It's my favorite in the whole world I just think I'd kind of I'd sacrificed too much at that point and it had made my life kind of by my own doing miserable and I was like I really would love to just rebalance this life and you know put some love back into the people who I know are there for me I just haven't seen them in so long um and coming home like it gave me the time to be able to do that and I'm still so grateful for that time because I don't know if I'd be in the same position or be as happy now and so how long were you guys apart for so we have like trying to explain it to people so we met at an open mic night when I was 19 yeah and my friend bailed on me last minute and I was like I'm not gonna go and my mom's outside in the car and she's like just like wave if you're good and like I'll beep and like if you want to leave just come back out and get in the car so I went in and I was like I saw this like there was never any young people knew where I lived ever so basically I saw a, like a cool group of like people my age and I was like oh my god I got up played my guitar played Lost Without You played a couple of other songs that I'd written that I would constantly like play around open mic nights and then I went and I sat on my own and I was like it's a bit scary because I didn't really have many I didn't go to school in my area so I didn't have any local friends but I was trying to be brave and get out of my comfort zone and basically yeah he came over and he's like do you want to come sit with us and I was like yeah you're so cool and so he's three years older than me he'd just come back from uni in Manchester um we actually had a lot of friends in common but we didn't really realize um and then that was when we sort of started a friendship and we were best friends for like the next three years I think we just kind of naturally were like we respect each other as people then we we did try and write songs together and then we kind of ended up in like a civil war style band where he played cello and I play acoustic guitar he was always like my biggest champion and I think like we've seen each other grow up almost together. And I was very, very young, I think when we met. 
Um, but it was kind of only when my mum almost died, which was such a scary thing, but basically she had like a pulmonary embolism where like you have like a heart attack in your lungs, which is so scary. And she was like hours away from death and we really didn't know. She's completely fine now, which is amazing. Was that before you started? This is in 2016 and I just signed my record deal and we were still just friends, but he'd just broken up with his girlfriend. Um, and I'd broken up with my boyfriend a while back and he just like ran to the hospital, like he ran. And I was like, holy, like it hit me. I was like, this is my person. Like I, I've always loved him so much, but that moment he was just there for me. Um, but then after that, there was kind of lots of like back and forth, like, you know, you went out to someone else. Like I wished it was me. Like there was like a lot of like, we kind of both went through our like different douchebag phases at different times, mm. you know? And then I feel like all of the touring, all of like, there was a lot of me being like, I'm going on tour, like I can't do this to you. And it was kind of a lot of back and forth. And I think I have written songs about other people. They're not all just about him. I think people should like caveat that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I use a lot of kind of emotional, like sausage mince meat in songs. Like it's not always about one person. Like Castles isn't about one person. Um, lots of that you is, but um, it's just, it's been such a journey to get to the point where we're both happy and grounded and, and like each other's biggest champions, you know? And he's a musician and a singer-songwriter and we do the same thing. And now it's a positive, you know? We're past that competition. We're into the kind of really like champion each other. So it's like you kind of needed that time apart in order to, I guess, A hundred percent. I wouldn't take it. I don't do think the... either of us would take it back. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really made us into the people. And where we like respect, we've always respected each other massively as people, but I think respecting the relationship and respecting the weight of that and realizing that you, there's a lot of people in the world, but none of them really compare to someone that knows you, like really knows you, you know? It's so interesting listening to the album from start to finish in its, in its proper order, because I think it takes you on that real journey in terms of it really guides you through like sort of like the five stages of grief but the five stages of heartbreak you have yeah. that you have that kind of initial sense of liberation and thinking I'm free from this terrible relationship and mm. then you have those moments where you think oh actually I kind of miss them and oh I wonder if they're with someone new and that doesn't make me feel very comfortable and then you yeah. kind of go back and you're like no I'm a single independent woman I'm free I can be alone and then you're like oh no but I'm a bit tired and I'm a bit vulnerable and I miss them and yeah. it's very much that kind of up and down cycle and the songs really really reflect that was that I love that you can hear that yeah oh, there's <laughs> definitely there's definitely that in there you can really sure. hear that I was going to ask is that like an intentional thing and do you think that do you think that we do go through those sort of very rigid stages and heartbreak. Massively, like, you're right, it's like grief. There's yeah. nothing linear about it. Like you can take three steps forward and then be like five steps back and then be like massive, you know? But it's just that continual, like that's why I was really, really obsessed with doing the inner work and the growth that I don't think I had had the time to do. Like, you know, it's not success and, and fame are just so much easier than like actually working on yourself and putting in the time and effort. Like that's just scary. Well, like it's no really gonna, scary. No one's gonna tell you that you need to sit down and work on yourself if no. you're kind of like, you know, booking shows. No, they'll be just like, well done you, just keep yeah. running from it. Like yeah. keep running on the adrenaline. It's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit more about how having therapy kind of informed your songwriting process. Cause you said the first album was sort of like, you know, stuff that you just needed to get out. And now you kind of have that greater level of, I guess, self-awareness, is that it? Yeah, for many years, people were like, you know, songwriting is like therapy. Like it's like therapy, but it isn't therapy. I think that's a really clear distinction. It's like, it's really good to do both. Um, and to sort of unpack that, someone said it was like, you know, your thoughts are kind of like stars and like therapy is like seeing constellations and just seeing the way it connects. And I think I'd, especially when it comes to music, there's so many emotional bonds and ties that makes you, anyone want to do this as a career, you know? Like it's, it's quite a insane thing to actually want to do. Like think of your biggest secrets and share them with people, you know, 
with major chords underneath them. It's just a bit wild, but I think there is that craving for connection and sort of like looking into why you you do that and making sure it's coming from a really grounded place. You're not just doing it for the validation that you can't give yourself because that's that's where danger lies. Mm -hmm. So I was really, really intent on finding out how I can, you know, build that bedrock of self-esteem so that this music can be a joy on top. It's not like, you know, it won't break me if it disappeared tomorrow. Like I will always have my piano and I will always just sit and play it until I'm, you know, yeah. 80 years old. Things going well or not going well, that can't be how you see yourself, you know? Yeah, and I want to ask you a bit about your songwriting process more specifically, because I know that you wrote the song Happier Alone after you realised that you were spending time with someone who yeah. you thought was great, but you yeah. came away from those exchanges feeling really kind of drained and yeah. sort of miserable. And I want to ask you a bit about how a thought like that turns into a, you know, this could be a song and how what that is like and how you kind of recognize when a thought is just sort of a passing transitory thing or when you realize no there's something in this that I want to kind of explore further through my music such a good question I really love that question because I think especially happier alone yeah is not written about my husband in the slightest but it's definitely a song that it's just when you're spending time with someone, it was a, a friend of a friend and it wasn't like you didn't choose that person into your life, but suddenly they're really like having a negative impact on you and you can't really put your finger on why or like really belittling you or making you feel really bad about yourself every time you, you're in this group that you normally love. And suddenly I was just like, it was just such a, a lightning bolt moment where I was like, oh my God, it's definitely them. Like they're not a bad person, but they're making me feel really bad. And I would actually feel better if I just didn't go and see this person, you know, at events and stuff. And yeah, I was in, in LA and it was just, it was such a forbidden subject for me to sing about, honestly, at the time, because it was someone close to my husband's family. And I just, I really didn't want them to know that. I think part of the forbidden nature of not, songwriting is not being able to tell people things and telling them via songs. That's yeah. what I think. Or not being able to admit stuff to yourself and telling yourself via songs. Yeah, I'd say it's the same with um, writing fiction yeah. <laughs> as well. Because um, I'm, I'm finding that with, with I, I interview a lot of authors as well. Ah, and amazing. kind of talk about how, you know, there are certain things that we will write in an article or a journalism mm. piece. And then there are certain things that you want to express that you can't that way for yeah. certain reasons. So it's easier to, to fictionalize it, narrativize it and exactly. put it into creative work. Does it feel cathartic then for you when you put those things into songs? I think so, yeah. Like there's obviously pressure, like you want it to be successful, but it's only when you really let go of that that you actually get the freedom to enjoy it and for it to be cathartic. I think there is an element of it. I think I want to get back to that fully cathartic feeling because like the more the more successful something gets, the more pressure there is to match it. And I feel like that kind of pressure is the opposite of that creativity. So yeah, I think this album in some ways it was a joy to make and in other ways it was like really hard to make. Like I think I really, really struggled with quite a lot of it. And like, you know, my label was kind of non-existent during that, but basically they shut down without telling us. So they were kind of like, you're on your own kid. And I'm like, great. I'm like, to make a second album on your own. But that's the thing, like we built a studio in the garden shed, like to do the first half in COVID. Yeah. We went to spend three weeks, no, three months in LA doing like some of the best writing of my life. And I think it was like, sometimes having to pick yourself up out of the dirt is like, is the best feeling because it's like you have that ownership and that grit and determination to just kind of build yourself back up just like I always sing about like in castles it's like one of my recurring themes it's yeah, like yeah, rising yeah. like a phoenix and you've said that um you know and, and hearing you talking about the pressure of writing a second album is reminding me of this anyway but having recently watched Lewis Capaldi's documentary 
which is sort of about the pressure of making his second album. And I know that you said that you have felt kind of parallels between your career and his own. And I can see why, because it was sort of the instant success and the instant kind of attention. At least, you know, I'm sure it didn't, doesn't feel that way to you, but that's how it looks to to an outsider. And the pressure of that, you know, you were so young when you started and I guess it's very easy to get kind of caught up in the attention and the fame and the success and people telling you you're brilliant. And like you said, not taking the time to mm. step away and realize, you know, that I need to work on various things in myself and prioritize my health and stuff. Mm. What what was it for you that resonated with Lewis Capaldi and how did you find that sudden, the sudden aspect of it all? Because it's a lot to take. It really is, yeah. I love Lewis. I think he's amazing. And like, we kind of grew up in like similar, well, not grew up, but like in the sort of like independent like label scene. Yeah. Like, there, we made our same, like, I made demos and we made it in the same like tiny little broom closet at this, at the independent label that I was signed to. Um, like with the worst mic you've ever seen in your life, which is actually the mic I recorded Lost About You on. And I remember just thinking like, and we, we supported, I supported him in 2017, like some of the really, really early days. And you just, there were some voices that just like your whole spine just gets chilled and you're like, that is stunning. Yeah. Like, I'm just obsessed with him, like as a songwriter and a person, I think he's phenomenal and just so, so kind. But I think the level of pressure, like watching the documentary, it just made me feel so much better because I think when you're going through it, you have no idea that anyone else is feeling the same as you, but then you realize that making a second album is notoriously like one of the hardest things you will ever do. I don't think anything will ever be that hard again. And watching like, you know, the sacrifices that he's been through, like, you know, on his mental health, it's just like, it really, it really hits home that you're like, oh, it could have broken me. Like it really could, this, this job isn't known to be like the kindest mm. on your mental health. And it's like, oh, like, you do have to fight for it and find people who will fight for your sanity while you're doing it to, you know, be on your side. But yeah, it just made me really emotional to watch it because I was like, obviously like saying, like, I see similarities, like he's like incredible, but I don't see similarities more than just like, just to be a very sort of sensitive, very sort of like person under a huge amount of pressure. And I think it's the same. And like you're saying, like writing a novel, right? Yeah. Any kind of art, when you kind of get people who are incentivized to sell more of you, they want more of you. And it's like, there's only so much to give before you don't have anything left. Well, that's what I find so interesting about all of the artists who I interview is that, you know, they they start this kind of creative pursuit, which just comes from a part of them, which is often the sensitive part and the vulnerable part. Mm. And then suddenly that part is being commodified yeah. and other people are controlling it and manipulating it and trying yeah. to turn it into something that maybe you're not comfortable with and mm. pushing you into places that are far out of your comfort zone and then it becomes something very different. So yeah. how do you how do you navigate that? How did you manage to kind of protect yourself? Do you think, I mean, it sounds like COVID kind of forced you into that a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. It was a bless. I, I was choosing to see it as a massive blessing because yeah. I was like, finally, I'm going to have the time to like really, really hear like what my heart wants to make instead of what other people think I should make. And I think there's still a bit of like what other people thought I should sound like on this album. And it's still kind of like, it is what it is. But you have to trust people when like, there's no one else giving you that feedback. And to me, like the fans, their feedback is like the only thing that I actually care about. Because mm. playing songs at open mic nights, that biofeedback of like feeling a room, feeling an audience, that's how I started and then to sort of try and make an album with not playing any of the songs live was really, really scary. So I started doing these weekly online live shows on Instagram and like playing the new songs and like seeing what the fans thought. But like at the end of the day, like there isn't, there isn't any sort of 
you just, I needed the support of a label and I basically just didn't have one, but the fans like turned up for me and they always do. And I love them for that. And that's why I will keep making music for the foreseeable. But without that, it's, it's hard to do on your own, I think. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I know you've said of, of starting this album, you said there's a weird feeling where you feel you've been so rewarded for your pain and heartbreak. You start to think, do I have to live like this forever? Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's interesting because, you know, you kind of shot to success because of these beautiful, sad ballads that you were writing. Yeah. And it's like your people are profiting from, and you, you know, you are profiting from your own pain, but that is obviously not sustainable and mm. a really difficult thing to do. How how do you reckon with that? And I know that, you know, even though the songs at the start of the album, this time around, lyrically, they're about, you know, painful subjects, musically, they're very uplifting. Is that how you kind of strike the right balance there? Or how do you navigate that? I think like I'm a ballad girl at heart. Like that's just who I am. Like sitting down on the piano is just like, and just sort of shutting my eyes. That's how I write. And I think there was a lot of pressure to be like, let's make something more upbeat and like a bit more, you know, like current. Like, and it's just like, I don't know, I tried to like pretzel myself into a, a different kind of artist to make, you know, the powers that be happy. And it's like, it didn't make anyone happy. It didn't make me happy, it didn't make them happy. And there are still a few songs on this album that are like 100% written by me. And like, I love them so much. There's like a, almost like a sister song to Lost Without You called Face in the Crowd. And I feel like that already, like you can just see on Spotify that people are really only resonating with the songs that like, I really, really, found like enjoyable to make not just like cathartic but like yeah when someone tells you what to be it's like that's never a good thing you know you've got to kind of listen to your gut as an artist and kind of champion that and I think I've learned I've learned so much making the second record that I would take on to the third but also so much that I would leave behind yeah it's that it's that kind of classic um star is born story mm. isn't it I'm just like picturing Lady Gaga being yeah. like kind of put into all of these weird that. costumes and yeah. being told to do all of these weird songs do you think it would have been if you had just said yes to everything that came your way, it would have been easy to kind of slip into that kind of part. A hundred percent. And there's so many things like, it just gives me so much more respect for other female artists. Cause I'm like, I now know that to get to whatever level of like authenticity that you have to fight so hard to hold on to that, like in a really loving way, but you have to not like your boundaries have to be strong because people will push them and be like, what if you were just like that other person? And it's like, that's not what got you there. What got you there was being unique, you know? And, you know, whenever I look at like Lana Del Rey or like Florence or, you know, Taylor Swift, like these incredible, like just female titans of pop, but they are just indomitably like themselves, lyrically, like musically, like no one has had a say in that but them. Yeah. No one. It's not, it's not easy to get there either. And, you know, I've interviewed quite a lot of um, female musicians and there's a lot of, you know, it's hard being a woman in any industry, but I think it's particularly hard being a woman in music. What do you think are some of the kind of biggest issues facing women in music now? Is it because there's so many things going on? Is it is it having control over your music and where it goes? Is it having control over your image? What kind of things are there that are going on? It's interesting. Like I've never. I mean, you're completely right. It's just hard to be a woman in any industry. It's like you do have things against you. But I think my mum always championed that my dad was like writing your own songs. Like, that's the only power you have. Yeah. And if you can't write the songs, then, you know, if I was waiting for someone to write me a hit, like I would still be waiting. Like I would wait forever. And I'm so, so like grateful that they championed me for that. Because I used to be like, oh, like, wouldn't it be great if someone could just write my, my songs for me or like could play my guitar for me? And they were like, this is you know, you being able to actually play and write is going to be the thing that saves you. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Um, and also it's the thing that your fans connect with, I guess, yeah. because then they know that what you're singing about is personal to you and it becomes personal to them. A hundred percent. I don't think people realize like 
the artists who write 100% themselves and the ones who have like 10 people in a room written for them. I don't think people really realize no, how different that is. The they process. just hear like song after song after song and they're like, I like that song. That's all you need to know. But I think behind the scenes, like that is the only power. And I think then you get to decide things like your image and your, you know, brands and that kind of authentic thing. But there is a kind of like a leveling of playing field. Like don't want to be the person that's like TikTok, but it's true. It's like, I guess it gives people like a sort of more grounded like view of what's possible because they're not the gatekeepers anymore they don't decide what what people find and what people don't find there's just a lot more people doing it so it's trying to stand out and be consistent and authentic is is in some ways harder than it was but it's also more possible yeah and i mean listening to the album last night and i said this before we started recording it did make me cry which probably gives you an insight into my brain and also where i'm at in my menstrual cycle but <laughs> i did i did cry particularly to I'm one sorry. of the songs <laughs> i'm fine i promise i'm fine um, the song um, that i wanted to ask you about was last day that you loved me because i yeah. thought that was such a strong image where you're kind of contemplating with an ex-partner, you know, when was it the moment that you decided that you didn't love me anymore? And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. What what was it that kind of made you want to write about that? And what was it like to, to write that song and put those thoughts into writing? I mean, thank you for choosing that song because I feel like that song is probably the, because it's more towards the end of the album, you know, other songs get a lot more sort of like love and focus. And I do like, I think there are songs in the album that will kind of like jump out at like different stages, you know? And that one for me was one that I really, really enjoyed writing just because it came from like a concept mixed with a true idea. Um, and it was actually a friend and she was, I don't even know if I've ever said this before. Well, she was going through a divorce and basically she was like, you know, 10 years of a relationship. And then just one day he just leaves. I could just feel like the palpable heartbreak of that. And I remember relationships with myself being like, and, he, and she said, like, I don't know. I literally don't know the moment when he like the last day he loved me. And I was like, holy shit. Like, there is there is a moment you yeah. can't put your finger on it they might not even be able to put their finger on it but you can drive yourself crazy just trying to work out what that moment was like it will give you some peace or some clarity or closure yeah. it won't but yeah it's things our minds do after relationships end to try and make it feel more like you know a plaster like a bow like just something just to stop you know put a full stop in it yeah, I think nothing makes your brain more unhinged than a breakup. Yeah. <laughs> it goes to the darkest places. And like you said, it's not going to give you any clarity or any kind of catharsis in any way. It's just, but it's just, you need to feel like you need to know what was that moment? Was yeah. it something I said? Was it something I wore? Was mm. it? It yeah. could be anything. And the truth is, well, like, you'll never know. And like, if that yeah, person yeah, was yeah. able to give you closure, then you'd probably still be with them, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're, they're never going to give you that. But I think it was just a really, like, I just really enjoyed going on that journey of like my past relationships being like, when was that day? Like, was yeah. it this moment? Was it that moment? And it was like, you're never going to know. But mm -hmm. these are, like, you're either growing together or you're growing apart. But there is these defining moments in all of our relationships where yeah. we're like, oh, okay, something did change. Yeah. Before we move on to the loves of your life, I want to ask you just generally, you know, life is pretty tough, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we love sad music. We love listening to songs that, as I said, make us cry and, you know, really kind of touch us emotionally. What do you think is the power of, of sad music, for lack of a better description? But why do you think we are still so drawn to, to ballads and that kind of genre? Such a good question. Again, I like these questions. Um, I think basically, I hadn't realized this, but I was like, I was in the dentist, this is such a weird one, and I was having like a really, really painful, like I'm so scared of needles. Oh my God. 
And basically like, I felt the pain of the and I was like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. And I basically just started like singing, like, like a trumpet noise, I was like, Argh. like uh, this noise came out. And I was like, I just uncontrollably started singing, like my initial reaction. And my mom told me the story when she was giving birth to me, I like, it was like the worst labor ever. It was like 36 hours and we almost both died. And she was like, she just sang her way through it. Um, and she's not a singer or anything. She just she just started singing. And she was like, sometimes oh, things are- she singing? I know, I think there's a song her and my dad used to sing, like folk songs, and she just started singing them. To, they That's started singing them to each amazing. other. And my dad's like a guitarist and sings and stuff. and. He sings, but she doesn't. So it was strange that that's where she went. And she said, Freya, there were just some things in life that are so painful. There is, you, there is nothing you can't help but sing. And I think it is like, it's more than a coping mechanism. It's kind of like the closest thing you can have to medicine when you are like in emotional agony. Mm. You know, there's, no, there's nowhere else to go. I think, you know, singing, like dancing, writing, like these things save us. And I think they saved our ancestors and they're still like so deeply within us that the idea of like coming together and singing about our pain instead of suffering in silence is still like one of the most beautiful things I can imagine. Mm. And I used to just be like, oh, it's just pop music. It's just songs like it's, you know, I love, it's not just that it's, a song is a really powerful thing. But I, I think some of the messages that I get, especially about Lost Without You, like, you know, people have played that song at, you know, their children's funerals and like their weddings. And these like these moments that I cannot even comprehend. Mm. And I'm like, sometimes you just have to take a second and like really take that in and just feel that that gratitude for the fact that I've been able to make something that has been part of, part of real people's lives and like has had an impact. And I've managed to connect with people that I will probably never even meet, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's a really strange but sublime thing. 
for me, I was like, I was a strange child. Like I was, you know, taller than all the other kids. I was redhead. Like I was quite big as well. Like I was just bigger than the other kids, you know, quite young. And I think for me, that made me such an outcast at school. But at home, I was so loved, you know, and I had all my aunties and uncles and godmothers and godfathers who are actors. And they were all such champions of me being like, let's put on shows. Let's like, let's write songs. Let's do stuff together. Um, and then I go to school and I just be completely like ostracized and like ridiculed. And it was just, it was just these two completely different worlds for me. So I just kind of shut down and I went into my shell and I became kind of like a zombie version of myself at school. And then there was one day where I, I got piano lessons when I was like seven. I think there was some like complimentary, like you could get three free piano lessons as like a seven year old. And I was like, okay, I can do this. And my mom had sort of, I'd seen her play. So I went to do it and um, I had a really, really sweet piano teacher. The first one, she had really, really long fingernails. She could like barely play. She called Belle, she's pretty sweet. She was like, we're gonna show you how to play the chords. And I was like, okay, I can learn like this. And then she was like, well, we're gonna try and like learn to read music. And I was like, I really struggled because I was really dyslexic at school. So I was really struggling with reading and writing to begin with. Like speaking, like talking, like love that, could do that for days. But actually holding a pen, I was like really, really struggling with that. So she was like, okay, we'll just teach you some chords and see what you can do with that. And I went home that night and I wrote a song about um, people like being mean to me at school and like leaving me out. And that was the first time where I was like, I felt like I'd turned something really inescapable and painful into something like good and like, beautiful. I was like, oh my God, I turned something painful into something. And it was like this moment, this kind of like Rumpelstiltskin like moment. No, not him. You know, the girl who can tell stuff of pay into gold. Yes. Yeah. It was yes. like, I turned this yes. big pile of like shit into something good. And I was like, oh my God, I want to do that again. That was a, a real life changing moment for me. And also it was the first time I'd ever felt good at anything. My mom was determined to find the thing that I loved. Like it was her mission in life. Like we went to athletic lessons. I couldn't throw anything. Shit. We went to trampoline lessons. I like fell off the trampoline. She was like, we'll go, we're not going to stop until we find the thing you love. Like you're going to, you know, because they're such passionate, incredible people. And they were like, you're going to find that thing. And like, I thought it was like art for a bit. But I'm like, it's debatable and this was the moment where I was like I really loved this and she's like right okay let's get you know she said like I'll never stop paying for the music lessons like they didn't have a lot of money growing up like we had a really old piano and like the keys would literally fall off it and the piano teacher was like you really need to get her a better piano and they were like and it was actually my auntie went through a divorce bless her but she didn't want the piano that her ex-husband had given her and she gave it to me and that's the only reason that I wrote any of these wow, really? these songs yeah and it's still the same piano sat in their front room at the moment and it means so much to me that piano because it did it changed my life and when did you kind of know that you had a good voice because I feel like you know young girls always you know oh I want to be a pop star but not everyone has a voice like yours how did you was there a moment when you were kind of singing for someone in your family and they were like oh my gosh there were, there were a couple of moments. It was around the time where I was about sort of like eight or like seven or eight. And I think, yeah, I was watching Love Actually and you know, the moment with the little girl where she sings like, like I don't want to look for Christmas. At the end, I remember being like, whoa, like she's so cool. So grown up, she's like 12 or something. And I was like, I wonder if I could do that. And I went to my bedroom and I was like singing into my hand. I was like, I don't. <laughs> and I was like, and I called like my best friend at the time, like on the landline. I was like, I think I can sing. And she was like, okay, cool. And then the next day in school, she was like, everyone, I think I can sing. And they were like, yeah, whatever. But it kind of like, there was a moment where this girl, like the next school I went to was like, like I was so like left out and she was like, everyone freaking sing. And like they all like gathered around me and I sang something. They were like, whoa. And it was like the first time I'd been treated like a human being at school. And I was like, yes, so cool. Then there'd be these nights, these sort of talent show nights, like once or twice a year. And it was like the whole night. It was the first time I felt like I was like my true self outside of my home. And yeah, there was just a moment, this open mic night when I was like 11 and I played these two songs I'd written and it just went crazy. And I was like, 
I was like, I found it. I found the thing I love. And then when I find something like that, I'm pretty like persistent and like, I just became obsessed with it. It was like every lunchtime after school, every day I'd just be in the piano room, just like writing, you know, I made friends with the janitor and like, she'd like give me the key and stuff. And when no one else would let me in there, I'd like sneak in there and be just like, it was quite a rebellious act for me, which I loved. And at what point did you decide this is more than a hobby? This is something I want to pursue. I knew when I was 11, I was like, this is now the thing that I'm going to never stop doing. And it was weird. I was like, I'll probably have other loves in my life, but I feel like this could be the longest. I was like, it hit me. And how, was did, a you, how did you go into getting signed and getting your first kind of <laughs> that was really record hard. deal? Um, well, my parents basically like, we didn't know anyone in the music industry. I think people think because you're actors, you don't know anyone. Literally, like my dad, you know, writes and plays and stuff. It doesn't mean you know anyone. But so basically my mum was like, the next best thing, you can't read music. So maybe, you know, the Brit school would be like the next best thing. And I used to see like at the Brit Awards, they'd all be in the front row. And I knew Adele went there and Amy Winehouse and I loved them. Yeah. I was like, I would love to go there for sixth form. I missed the first um, application process. So it was the second time, the 16 to 18 slot. Um, and we were really, really lucky. My my Nana gave me some money to be able to go and move down there. Um, and we basically like found this like tiny little flat in the middle of Croydon. There was like no furniture on the floor. We had a mattress on the floor for like two years, basically. Um, we didn't have furniture. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. Um, there's no Wi-Fi, but it basically I had a mirror, I had a mattress and I had a, an acoustic guitar. And I'd come back every day from Brit school and I'd put the mattress up and I'd like, I'd dance and I'd play and I'd sing. And that was what I did for two years. And that's when I came out of the Brit school and I was like, I thought I was going to get signed. Didn't, it was heartbroken. And then there was a guy who I went to the Brit school with who was interning at an indie label. And they were like, what have you got? New kid, like anything for us? And he's like, what? Actually, my friend, like from school is wow. pretty good. And so he gave them... I think it was a demo of Lost Without You and that changed everything. And that's how it happened. That was three years after I left the Brit school though. I remember for three years just playing open mic nights around London thinking like, I was like, please let something work. Please yeah. let something work. Because I think people assume you come out of a school like that and like, oh, boom, no. you get a record deal. But... No, no, no. Yeah. I, pr I transformed pretty drastically during that. Like when I went to the Brit school, I was, yeah, I was quite significantly bigger and I lost about like half my body weight. And I did my sort of transformation glow up kind of like out of the cocoon, the butterfly to a common. I don't think people from the Brit school would even recognize me now, to be fair. I don't think they would. I mean, this sort of brings me on to your second love that you gave us, which you said helped kind of transform your life when you yeah. that age, which which is intuitive eating, which yeah. I, is a phrase that I have heard of. Yeah. I don't really know what it means. So can you tell us a bit about- I'm so passionate about this. What it is, what it means and, and how it helped you. So yeah, I've struggled with like my, my weight my entire life, but like not even consciously, I think it was just like the more unhappy I was at school, the more of a physical defense I needed. It's not something I really like I've spoken about before, but I knew to do what I loved, like which was, you know, to be a singer-songwriter, you need energy, you need, you know, the performance to be able to like travel the world and like do what you love. I was like, I know that I was gonna have to do a pretty intense sort of glow up. And when I was 16, I was I was pretty low in the summer. And after I was homeschooled for a couple of years, that's probably the biggest I've ever been. And my mum went to the secondhand bookshop and she got me this um, copy of, it was called Paul McKenna's I Can Make You This, <laughs> which is such a shit phrase, but it's honestly one of, this book changed my life like beyond words. It's a really, really simple set of like intuitive eating rules. And I tried so many things and like diets and exercise and nothing was working because it was so much more emotional than that. And it was so much less about restriction and a lot more about like just self-compassion and like kindness and allowing you to eat whatever you want, but just really be present as you eat it instead of using, using food as a kind of an escape. Like so many people do it. It's like, I still can do it. It's like, it's just always, you know, like being a drug addict, like there's always that 
road in you and you have to actively on a daily basis like fight it you know and I've started I started a, a journal when I was 16 and I've written a journal every single night for now 13 years which is I'd say the biggest defining thing of my life because it gives you that accountability to just be like I'm just doing this day in front of me no matter what goal you're going for and yeah I basically between that and like dancing in front of in the kitchen at night at my parents house I basically I think I lost 10 stone yeah which is crazy and basically became a completely different person basically who I was before I went to school like you know I was a little girl with like bouncy like ringlets and like fiery energy and like that was who I was and that kind of got knocked out of me at school and then I just I came back out of that shell and yeah basically without that book I actually got to do Paul McKenna's podcast um in lockdown I couldn't even talk to him I was literally like you have no idea how many times I've written your name in my diary over so many years I've like today I did Paul McKenna or today I fell off the wagon or today like he's just an incredible man and I'm just so so grateful to him for that book you I mean you must have met so many famous people in your career and I'm guessing is he the one you were starstruck by the most yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. I've met some really famous people and he is just, because I think it's not just Starstruck, it's like the people that have had the biggest impact well, on your life. that's what it is. Yeah, 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 that's what it is. I think it, it's, that's what makes you kind of in awe of someone. Yeah. And how does that work when you're touring then? Because I know that that can be really difficult in terms of sticking to a routine yeah. and sticking to your kind of, your the way that you like to eat. How do you navigate that? I find it really helpful for when I'm touring, especially because you're right, like looking after your physical health and mental health. And it's like, you can spiral very easily. Like I don't really drink when I'm working, which is that really, really helps because it messes up your voice. Um, but when it comes to eating, yeah, basically on a daily basis, I'm just like trying to stay as conscious and consistent as possible. And my diary helps me do that. But it's actually really, really great because it's not like you're sort of restricted by the kinds of food you can eat. So you can eat whatever you want, but just like, it's just making sure you don't get so stressed that you kind of start mindlessly eating or using it to escape again. Cause I think that's where the danger zone lies for me. Um, but yeah, I still, I still do my, my star, my stickers in my diary every night and I either get that sticker or I don't. And it's, it's, it's really helped me break it down into manageable Stars chunks. Stars and stickers in the diary. Yeah. Is, is that part of the book? Yeah. Explain that. How does that work? Well, basically I buy like, I've actually been buying these like liberties. It's like a notebook every yeah. year. And then like I get like colored stickers and they, they count for like a different goal for the day. So whether that's like movement or like I've really been into get, getting into like steps at the moment, like, you know, 15,000 steps yeah. or like 10,000. Um, and basically just like showing up for yourself. Like the diary is one. And then whether I did music and I did my, my hour singing less like, I do a, like a singing training lesson. And basically if you've, you know, what kind of day you've had, as long as I've hit my stickers, like I've had a good day, you know? It just kind of breaks it down and makes it much less like looking up at a mountain and much more just like one step in front of you, you know? Yeah, I love that because it's taking something that is very, very childlike. Yeah. Like getting your little sticker. It makes you feel know, good. You're like, I got my stickers. Yeah. And that sort of brings us to your final love, which is journaling and vision boarding and life coaching. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about I mean, start off with vision boarding, because I think that is something that people have an idea of in their mm. heads. You know, manifesting is something that has become much bigger in the last it's become so six popular. months. It's there become are so, so many popular. things that I've been obsessed with for so long that have just become really yeah. popular on TikTok. And I'm like, wow, I love that people are sharing these ideas. Yeah. And like, you can reach a further audience because I think it's so powerful. And at the time, I didn't believe in it at all. I thought it was utter bullshit. I was like, this is not going to work at all. So when did you start <laughs> kind of doing this stuff? And, and yeah, explain to us, what is vision boarding? Um, so there's kind of like a couple of elements to it. Basically, my mum's friend, she wanted to train to be a 
life coach and she's an incredible woman called Kelly. I love you, Kelly. And basically she was looking for a guinea pig to practice her life coaching on. And she's like, she knew I was, I was about 21. I hadn't been signed and I was actually considering giving up music. I was like, this is really hard. Like, I don't think anything's going to work. And she's like, just come in for a practice session. We're just like, I'm learning as much as like you'll we'll just give it a go and she basically you know made me like sort of visualize and say out loud my dream life and I was like there's literally no point Kelly like I'm not going to get it like I've tried three years of playing I've wrote I've written this song called Lost Without You like three years ago no one cares like I should probably just retire and she's like okay (laughs) let's start there but in a dream world what would it look like and I was like so I'd love to play at this place called St Pancras Old Church that I saw a friend of a friend play in. Like I'd love to have play on a red Nord keyboard. And I really visualized it and I was like, and it could be like an album launch or something like that. And then I also visualized like being on the West Coast, down the West Coast of America in a van, like being on tour, like looking out and like seeing like the beautiful views of like the sea and the ocean, but like playing these shows. And I was like, it felt impossible. And a year to the day, like I was sat in St Pancras, like playing a Nord at my album launch, like wow. a year to the day. And it was, insanely specific and I was like there was no way that worked I think definitely like speaking out loud and really visualizing it did something to me it sort of reset my like my subconscious like programming just changed and I suddenly became like there was something that was possible then you know because you'd been there in your head and even recently I haven't like even said this but when it came to like being on the Graham Norton show and stuff so basically at Christmas I was like I haven't done manifesting in a while it's been a while um and I was like, what would I really, really want? I was like, I'd love to be on the Graham Norton show. I really would. Like, I've loved the show my whole life. I went to go see the show when I was 18, like in the audience. And I was like, I really visualized like sitting on the red sofa, like what the sofa felt like. I imagined him like calling me over. Like I'd never even met Graham at that point. Um, and then it was like a week later, they were like, do you want to come on his radio show? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Like they were like, you'll never get the TV show because no one does. And also like, it's the end of the series. Like it's over, like it's pretty much done. And I went and we just like, I got up at five in the morning to warm up. I was like, I'm going to give this my best shot. I played these songs that I could like this cover and I gave it my best. And we just really, really clicked. And he was so lovely. And he was like, it was really, really lovely to meet you. I was like, you too, Graham. And then I think it was three days later, like even his own producer was like, there's, there's no chance. This show is like 15 people should go this final slot. Like, but maybe next series. I was like, okay, all good. Like that's after the album comes out, but all good. Um, and then we got a phone call three days later and Graham was like, you're going on. And like, I was like, oh, I'm not. I was like, yeah, this is insane. So I think there was like, there were these beautiful moments, these glimmers of like magic that I'm not even sure where they've really come from. And like, I didn't even believe it as I visualized it and it still sort of came true. But I just think I, there is sort of multiple realities and I'm definitely living in the one where like things went right. And I'm just so grateful on a daily basis for that. What was it like when you went on the show? It was so cool. It was like frame for frame, like exactly what I'd seen. And I was like, like it was literally almost like deja vu, but like it hadn't already happened. Yeah. Um, Who were you on there with? So we were on with like Pedro Pascal, Dame Helen Mirren um, and Ariana Du Bois. And they were so lovely to me and it was just incredible. That's amazing. And and so how does it work in terms of the the journaling? I know you said, you, you know, with the stickers and the stars, yeah. but do you do it sort of every night before you go to bed? Yeah, every night before I go to bed. And how long do you write for? What Just kind that of one page. I like, Just I, one page. I find it like quite like to only have to do a page because sometimes there are some nights where I like I do not have it in me and I'm like I really don't want to do it it's most nights I don't want to do it to be fair but I always feel so much better and I feel like that accountability just makes you feel like you know you turn up for so many other people in your life and it's like that one moment you're turning up for yourself and like to really you know say thank you for the moments in the day that are really like like made you feel better about yourself and for the people that you love as well just finding those moments of gratitude but also just like keeping yourself accountable to what you're actually doing with your life and if you're enjoying yourself or if people in your life are good for you or not Mm. yeah and finally before we wrap up 
sitting here now recording this podcast, yeah. what do you want to put into the universe? What are you manifesting next? The second album's out. I know you've got a really busy summer. What are you kind of thinking about visually at the moment? I think the thing I'm finding really exciting at the moment is just this feeling of like, I literally feel like I'm like buzzing with like, put, like potential of like joy and freedom that I haven't had in such a long time. Like, I don't know, there's kind of like, yeah, what I'm going to put out into the universe is that I really want to do more songs in, for film and TV. Like we've just written this song for a film that's coming out at the end of the month. And that's something I put on my very first ever physical vision board. I've never made a physical one before. I've done loads online, I've done Pinterest ones. This is the first time I went to like Kodak. I got these printed out i cut them out i got print stick i was like on the floor for like three hours i had to be like to my husband i was like i need a bigger board i was like my dreams are too big he literally went out to the shop and like came back with a bigger board and he found me this little like tiny orange tree as well they're really really sour right? so I'm like, but it was just like it was such a beautiful moment and i was like i think even admitting to myself how much i love film music and tv you know all of these moments in my life like love island like the sinks that i've got it's like for me like film music pop songs and like TV and film, like those are my three loves and I would love to like manifest writing more songs for film and TV after this. Yeah. Amazing, okay, it's in the universe, it's gonna happen. <laughs> That's it for today. Thank you so much everyone for listening. You can listen to Love Lives on all major podcast platforms. You can also watch us on independent TV, all social media platforms and all major connected devices. I will see you soon, bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 